Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 61, How Alex Harrow Writes. Episode 61 is a really good one, my friends. Alex has such a wonderful perspective on the writing life, and I'm so grateful that she has shared all of her wisdom and some of the hard-fought lessons and is just someone who cares deeply about writing and the writing life. And good news, very good news. This episode will be the first episode that will be available on YouTube in late January. So if you want to see a video of Alex and I chatting away, that will be available as soon as we get that channel up and running. I'm really excited for that. I want to say a special thank you to Alex for her time and graciousness one more time. And now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Alex Harrow. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today's special guest is Alex Harrow. Alex is the author of the Hugo Award-nominated novel, The 10,000 Books of January, and this book was also a finalist for the Nebula, Locus, World Fantasy, and Goodreads Choice Award. Her second book, The Once and Future Witches, was released on October 13th, 2020. So I read The Once and Future Witches in anticipation of this interview, and I absolutely loved it. Like, the story is super engrossing. The, the world is so richly built. It's incredible. And the characters, I just, all of it. I loved it. It was fantastic. Um, one more thing. The covers on Alex's books are insanely beautiful. Like, I am blown away by them. They're, like, captivating. Like, it makes me, like, stop and study them. Uh, and so, yeah, good times all around. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And yeah. and honestly, I love my covers. The covers might be my favorite part of the book because oh, I had beautiful. nothing to do with it and it just came out beautifully. <laughs> I I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, they're they're um they're insanely beautiful, like captivatingly beautiful. And I feel like they so beautifully matched uh the content of your books. It, it, it's like a really great combo there. Yeah, the uh, like, second one in particular, the yeah. designer is Lisa Marie Pompilio, and she oh. um, read the book. And like the second one has all these little references to the plot. And she was extremely adamant oh in gosh. all of their like marketing meetings. She was like, no, it can't be a different flower. It has to be Belladonna. <laughs> so I'm like extremely good, grateful. <laughs> like a good designer, extremely specific. Yeah. Um, so this is a fun interview for uh, many reasons. It's my first interview of the new year, which is cool. Uh, and so, you know, Alex, I don't know if you've been, you know, on the, the zoom horn already. Uh, secondly, this is, this is interesting. It's the first interview that we are recording for a podcast and it will wind up on YouTube as a video. So if you want to see, uh, Alex and I smiling faces <laughs> while we talk, uh, this will be available on YouTube as well on the how writers write YouTube channel, which is brand new, hasn't even started yet. So this is our inaugural episode. So congratulations, Alex. What a what an honor you have. <laughs> I'm just excited that it came this far into the pandemic because early on I had like right. a crappy webcam and no mic and like I've got my setup now. I'm ready. Yeah. We're like all uh, designed now for mobile, <laughs> like distance, you know, interactions. The, the world is just, yeah, 
it's changed so much. Um, okay. So what, here's where I want to start. I, I read it. You have the most fun bio on your website. One of the most fun ones I've ever read. And I wanted to uh, read it because it made me laugh. And then I wanted to start digging into like your, your journey towards storytelling. So this is what your bio says. I've been a student and a teacher, a farm worker and a cashier, an ice cream scooper and a nine to five office dweller. I've tried, I've lived in tents and cars, camp or cramped city apartments and lonely cabins and spent a summer in a, in a really sweet 79 Volkswagen Vanagon Westphalia. I have library cards in at least five States. Now I'm a full-time writer living with my husband and two semi-feral kids in Berea, Kentucky. It is, I'm very sure the best of all possible worlds. So that is, there, there's so much amazingness in that. In, in your bio, what I want to know is like, talk, let's start with your journey to storytelling. So you obviously have a very colorful past. You've done a lot of things. Like, how did you find your way into being somebody who is writing novels and telling stories for a living? Yeah. I mean, 90% of that is luck. And I do also have to update that bio. I said okay. semi-feral because it was before the pandemic, but now I've been at home with two <laughs> toddlers for a year and they've just, they're just full run feral. full feral. Like I have a two-year-old okay. yeah. that like hasn't worn clothes since right. March, I think. So yeah, we're there now. Okay. Um, so as far as storytelling, um, I mean, I was definitely one of those like classically bookish kids. I loved stories. I loved fantasy. Uh, my mom had a English and history major. And so she kind of gave me my first library and all that. Um, but definitely like middle school, I would say I peaked because middle schoolers are like really brave and cool um, and they right. think they can do anything. And so I was like, I'm going to write a novel. And I did. And then after like two seconds after that, I got pretentious and teenagey. Um, and, and kind of abandoned fantasy for a while. It happens. Yeah. It happens right. to everybody. Happens to the best. And of so, us. yeah, when I went away to college, I was very much like, no, I'm going to be an academic. And I studied history and I never took any creative writing classes or anything like that. Um, and it took me a while to kind of find my way back to like what I actually really like doing um, and to get as brave as I was at 12, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what was it? Like, what? Okay. Because I, I, I love transitions and I love these periods in life where you move from one lens and all of a sudden the lens changes and you're like, oh, I'm going to see the world as a storyteller now. I'm going to try and move into this new lens, this new reality. And so what was it like? Like, did you read a book? Was there a moment yeah. when you're like, I am going to tell stories? Yeah. I mean, it turns out you never really leave what you truly love, right? So like studying mm. history is that oh, not like the that. most storytelling yeah. major you can have? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and what are you doing yeah. when you're writing history papers? You're, you're basically taking like random assemblages of things and, and building them into convincing narratives, which isn't actually that different from fiction writing, it turns mm -hmm. out. So I think I was kind mm -hmm. of practicing and like thinking and percolating this whole time. And then I was in grad school, getting my master's in history. Because if, if the undergrad doesn't employ you, just go back yeah. to school. Just keep It'll going. Fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> keep digging. When you're keep going. So I was finishing up my thesis and getting kind of sad the way grad students do. And I checked a Wizard of Earth out of the library for the first time since I was a kid, I think. And so reading that book just felt like, I mean, it was magical. You know, when you hit like exactly yeah. the right book at exactly the right time. Yeah. And it was this this part of this genre that I had sort of spent a lot of time dismissing, you know, and, and being grown up out of, and then to return to a Wizard of Earthsea and find that it was sort of wiser and more brilliant and more beautiful than I remembered it felt like, mm. oh, 
everything I've been learning and thinking about and all this academic stuff can actually fit into fiction too. Like it's not an either or thing. I can have it all. And so after that point, I kind of started thinking more seriously about stories and plots. And I got got a, a lot of like how to write books from writers out of the library. And I would say that was the beginning. Okay. So that that's it. Firstly, before we keep going, I'm a huge history fan too. Like what period, where, 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 what were you studying? I ended up, I was one of those obnoxious kids. who was like, what if, can I just study global history? And your advisor okay. would be like, that's not a thing. That's everything. Um, <laughs> that's so the <laughs> that's the world and everything that ever happened. Um, but basically what I became obsessed with was, was empire um, and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of like looking at history as a way to explain the power dynamics that we have today. And the place that I found that kind of rooted was late 19th century imperialism. Okay. So I wrote my thesis on representations of jungle in British children's literature at the turn of the 20th century. Oh, so you are already touching on books and literature. Yeah, and I mean, like, oh, obviously, yeah. when you're doing a history major and you're like, what if I just read the jungle book for my right. thesis? Doesn't that right. sound smart? You know, right. like, I'm clearly always finding my way back to it. Um, yeah, so... Oh, looking at fiction through the lens of history, like looking at these things as important sources, I think really helped me. No oh, that's so interesting. It. How much, how much, um, how much weight do you give? A, a lot of the guests uh, I've had on the show have had this idea that like storytelling at before or before they got, they, they got serious about it felt I don't want to say childish, but it didn't feel like a worthy endeavor. It didn't feel like a worthy thing to devote your life to. And it sounds like you were kind of in the same spot where there's like this epiphany where it's like, oh, stories are actually, or they can be, I should say, really serious. Like they can have real impact and they're just as serious as history. And they're just as serious as any of the other, you know, things that you can study. Um, Yeah, no, I think I totally had that same realization. And in particular, I think what helped was was studying like cultural history is what I was looking at. You know, I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I'm not like an economic historian or like somebody who was into the nitty gritty material details. Um, So what I was looking at was like the stories that people tell about themselves at various points in history and how much that reveals about like everything. Mm -hmm. And so like Mm -hmm. thinking about storytelling Mm -hmm. as like the main method of cultural transmission and replication and reinforcement, I was just like, wait, 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 wait. Right. Not only is this worth studying, it's not necessarily um, a dismissed thing. And particularly writing my thesis on children's literature, which is mm-hmm. the most looked down upon and the most like silly, you know, like some of the books I cite were, were alphabet books and picture books, like the right. youngest stuff carries so much cultural baggage in it. And I found that really um, empowering. And I yeah. guess less yeah. academically, <laughs> I also found it was really significant to... Um, have met my partner and be with someone who was totally not dismissive about anything that I found interesting. And I, and I know that's maybe not the most feminist take in the world to be like, I found a dude who believed in me and then I was enabled, but I did find a dude who believed in me and I was totally enabled into making art and it was fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's funny you say that because I think a lot of times as writers, we think that there's like a right thing to be able to write, right thing to be able to write. Oof correct thing to be able to write or a correct take on story or some, some genres or some ways of writing are more um, prestigious than others. And sometimes just that vote of confidence, even if, even if you already know it inside a vote of confidence from anybody, you know, a parent, a spouse, whoever it might be, a partner, a friend can have these massive impacts. Cause all of a sudden this thing that 
we've known to be a truth for so long, we're like enabled to believe it. Mm-hmm. And it actually means something. So I, yeah, I, I totally get that. So, oh, so studying history, what impact do you think studying history has had on your storytelling? Because as you said, history is very much stories and a lot of history, especially the older, you know, as you get back into like the earlier and earlier and earlier books, um, you know, they, they certainly have a flow to them and they have a, a character to them and they have a purpose almost to them. Stories and history communicate something. They're not just entertainment value, which some of our stories are today. And so, um, like how, how did, how did your study of history then kind of parlay itself and fuel your storytelling? Yeah. I mean, I would, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, I spent a lot of my life, like six years of my life studying it. Of course it influences everything I think could do, but, um, I think number one, it taught me the mechanics of writing, like clear, good academic writing yeah. is just as difficult as fiction writing. And just that basic training, I think I wouldn't be where I am without it. Um, and number two, I just think that way of seeing narrative when there isn't necessarily one or building a narrative out of things. So like um, early on my history papers, I would get the feedback from my advisor that they were about a moment instead of about a process. So history, like good academic writing or history writing is about change over time. You're documenting the change, the transition from one state of being to another. And if you're not doing that, you're just sort of describing wallpaper in a certain sense. And so I think it kind of gave me this sense, this like um, you're looking for change in a narrative. You're looking for a difference between point A and point B. And in studying cultural history, I became convinced that that difference often has to do with changing power dynamics. So I think it built in an interest in power and change in everything Mm -hmm. that I write. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's inherent tension in power dynamics, Mm -hmm, right? right. Like like you you just inherently have something like meaty to like, you know, dig your teeth into if you're like, what's the power dynamics between two people or two cultures or two whatever, you know? And Um, I think it's interesting that we both use historians and authors are always talking about agency. Like that word. Oh, I didn't know that was something in history. Oh my gosh. It's like a whole conversation about like who has historical agency and are you taking it away from people when you talk about them this way? Um, if you acknowledge the oppression of groups of people, do you still acknowledge the agency they had in their own lives? It's like a huge subsection of cultural oh, history. And so finding that that was basically the same conversation that happens in fiction writing when you're giving your characters agency was really interesting. So th- I, I want to actually um, pump the brakes just for a second. Where, let's, let's, no, 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 no. Because I, I, as you were saying that, it made me think. I remember when I first showed up for uh, my MFA for my master's, almost, I mean, day one, there was these conversations of agency and, um, little O'Brien didn't know what that meant. And, uh, I was like, what does agency mean? I was thinking like an ad agency, like a talent agency, like what, what is agency? So if you had to describe like the concept of agency in fiction for people out there who maybe are like, what are you guys talking about? What would that be? Um, I guess I would say it's a an individual or a community's ability to define their own um, lives uh, or, or, or to enact change in their own lives. And I think 
the fun thing about asking to define agency is it's almost a political question in and of itself. Right. Because, because it's like a trap. It's like a trap question. It's a trap. It's okay. Up. It's a, such a good one. <laughs> because both in history and in fiction, you instantly get into these debates because yeah. if you define agency strictly as the amount of political and social power that a person has, like the, their, the degree to which they can influence their world, then you are basically just acknowledging only a traditionally white and male and straight vision of agency you know like it's a person who has the position of power those are the only people who have agency and I think it's really important to complicate that idea and to acknowledge that even people who um, are made powerless often find ways to control their environments even if it's only controlling themselves and how they react to that environment Mm. and so I think that it's it's actually more complicated than than just like I, so in fiction sorry i'm so sorry i'm like this um it gets into no this, this is this. no this is perfect <laughs> but, but i think i think what what this does is it really highlights the complexity I, I think there's a certain um complexity in writing fiction especially if um you're you're moving from your lived experience and writing another lived experience which you should do i mean like people in, in every way should um, very much explore in your fiction, like you can write anything you want, but there's this question of the perspective you bring to it. An agency has so much, um, you kind of like interconnectedness with your own perspective. And so it's something in our world specifically, as we start to say like, Hey, there's a lot of different perspectives and there's a lot of different lives that people live, um, making sure you tell those stories. I think respectfully, sensitively, and beautifully, powerfully. I mean, th- those are like the words that I would use that has such an interconnectedness with agency, at least to me. Yeah, it totally does. Yeah. And to make sure that you're not trampling over someone else's agency right. and space right. in the stories that you're trying to tell. Are you in fact resting the story away from the narrator who should have it? Right. Like that's a really important thing to be aware of. Um, yeah, I just, I feel like in reader responses to certain genres of fiction and styles of books, you can sometimes see they'll complain that a character was boring or they didn't take risks or they didn't, you know, and in some ways, sometimes those readers are complaining about a character who does not have social agency, who is managing it the best they can. I think right. it's kind of something that both writers and readers work to yeah. maybe should work to educate themselves about. Yeah. There's, there's a whole, there's a whole there's, lot there. Right. There's, there's, there's a whole world. And, and we, we probably in the format of a podcast, you know, in this kind of thing, you probably can't even really dive into it. It's something as if for the people out there who are either watching, ha look at, or listening. Um, it's certainly something to, to spend some cycles on and, and, you know, just, just to kind of wrap your head around this idea of agency. Um, we can do, well, I'll, I'll go through and I'll actually find some, some articles that, uh, or just some resources that would be a good thing for, people are read of this as a new concept, especially, again, especially if you're taking on narratives that are, um, you know, outside of your own or, or ones that you might have assumptions on that may or may not be correct. Right. That's probably a good, uh, a good setup for it. So, okay, let's get back to history. So, um, so you're studying history, you realize, Hey, I want to tell stories. And you said you had picked up some books. Like what did that transit? Again, I love transitions. I'm all about, I'm all about new beginnings and transitions. What did that transition look like from going from being like a historian to being like, okay, now I'm going to learn narrative. I'm going to learn how to tell a story. And, and how did you kind of start piecing that together so that you could get your first you know, book done, your first works done? 
Yeah. Um, so I was partially homeschooled and, and it was only in high school and I was kind of in charge of it myself. So I was pretty used to the process of like, I know nothing about this. Let's go. Yeah. So I looked up some bibliographies. I checked out some books. I read, I think, Stephen King's on writing first. Classic, is actually- isn't it? pretty great you it's know? great it kind of holds up yeah it's great um of course i got Le Guin's. i got a book of her essays and her steering the craft and those were maybe more important to me personally yeah. um and then i think jeff vandermeer's wonder book just came out about that same time and i don't know if you've heard of it but it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a specific very loose and creative and interesting guide for sci-fi and fantasy writers um and that was really helpful but I think the main thing is that I just was thinking about it a lot. Like I wasn't quite writing yet, but I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of like, what if I wrote a story about this? What kind of writer do I want to be? Like what, you know, you're edging closer to something that might be a voice or a set of interests. Um, I was also, of course, not stupid. And I was continuing to pursue like academic stuff. So I finished my master's and I was adjuncting. Um, so I was super poor, but I had lots of time. And I wrote my first short story and then it was just absolute garbage. It was so bad. It was so bad. Aren't and it was nothing. I, yeah, they are. And but yeah. like I finished it and I had this realization of like, that's not my story. That was just a story. You know, like yeah, right. realizing the difference between a story that someone could write that would be a good and it would seem like a story and a story that you should write that is mm. that is yours and you're excited about was huge. And so the second story was published in Strange Horizons. And pretty much after that, like learning to hear that difference in your head between like a story and your story was kind of crucial. Um, and so I think I wrote maybe two or three more stories and then I started 10,000 doors. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. And what's incredible, what is truly incredible about this whole story is, um, so 10,000 doors was like a, like a debut novel and a massive, massive success, like, especially for a debut, insanely successful. Um, really well, really well read, really well, um, reviewed, um, lots of just, you know, when I, when I do a bazillion hours of research and everybody, when I was researching, just kind of like, you know, this debut novel is just, just seemed like this uh, amazing response to it was, was incredible. And so, um, what do you think it was? I mean, like, like what was it that you think led to that debut novel, which is really rare to have a debut, have so much, have so much, um, praise and so much accolades and know, be so widely weird. read it's what, just what luck it? it's it's like 90 percent luck on that right. i mean like certain books are just, like i don't know i don't know i i really cannot emphasize enough the roles of luck and privilege in in having a book that was a a pretty good success for what it was um as far as the way people reacted to it or something yeah. i just feel like it's it's that you know it's that thing of like finding the story that is totally you like that book has a ton of like my personal id in it you know like Mm -hmm. it's it's um very very much in conversation with all the british children's literature that had imperial themes that i was studying in college it's very much about kind of my own sense of like wistful escapism and nostalgia for my own childhood it's set in kentucky and vermont where i lived (laughs) like it just has so much of myself in it and it turns out there is a not inconsiderable number of other people <laughs> who spent their childhoods just kind of like testing the backs yeah. of closets and wardrobes, like just in case, like probably not, yeah. but just in case. And and so that was a much more, and maybe especially as we live in an increasingly dark political timeline, um, maybe especially a nice childhood escapism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder, um, 
how how much do you think so I think sometimes when you read books, they have an energy to them. You know, they, they, they have a pop to them. And even if it's not a genre you like or an author that you've, you know, really read, um, you can sense a certain energy in it. And I believe, you know, as, as writers, we impart our energy into the work, into the book, and then the book transfers that energy then to the reader. And so really what the reader is experiencing is the energy of the writer, okay? How much of you know, seeing a book find such an audience, do you think it, it is that you kind of stayed true to what you wanted to write and put so much of yourself into it, as opposed to maybe writing something that you thought was potentially more commercial or safer um, yeah. that maybe wouldn't have had the same pop to it? I mean, it's tricky. It's super abstract question, because, so good luck get, answering it. Because we get into <laughs> these difficult places because yeah. it, it's one of those things where what happens to be true to myself and my own experience and, and my energy or whatever you want to call it is perhaps more marketable or as is seen as more marketable by mm-hmm. publishing executives than somebody else's extremely true and valid story. Do you know what I mean? So it's not, it's, mm. it's not so much like a testament to any kind of like um, That's moral compass of my own to like staying yeah. true to myself as it is that like staying true to myself as a white 25 year old woman who grew up on fantasy books is a marketable and enjoyable experience for a large audience. Um, and I just, I just sometimes hope that maybe mostly publishing executives can find similar validity in stories that are authentically told from less from marginalized backgrounds. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an interesting, it's a super, I mean, I appreciate that a lot. And I, and, and I appreciate that, that clarification. I mean, that's a really interesting way. Um, I, you know, and, and the, the question comes from a lot of times when I talk to writers that like, it's like the, and in all of our, you know, courses and coaching programs and communities, all the stuff that, that we do to kind of help writers tell their story, our North star is always to stay true to the story that's inside of you and, and to let that story come out first. And there's nothing wrong with writing in any style or genre, like there's nothing wrong with any of those. And I don't even like, there's certainly nothing wrong with saying I'm writing and I, and I'm writing because I want this to be my living, to make a living at it. Like there's, there's, there's no, um, you know, of, of course it's kind of like you, you follow the path you want, but the North star is right. A story that's inside of you. Right. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I see people or, or work with people who are trying to write someone else's story. And it tends to be a, more painful than it needs to be. I, I won't mm-hmm. say it's ever painless, <laughs> more painful than it needs to be experienced. Um, and, and it seems to kind of, you know, when you read it, it, it seems to be that there doesn't have the, their life energy in it. it. It has somebody else's energy in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and there's plenty of decent writing that comes out that way, but, but I do think that the stories that I, I tend to respond to most are ones that, um, may not be written they may not be writing what you know in a literal sense but they are writing what you know in an emotional Correct. sense you yeah. know <laughs> yeah totally uh, yeah totally 100% there 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 is that that old trope like write what you know and i don't i don't actually don't agree with that um at all maybe start cuz it's probably easier to write that way to, <laughs> when you're beginning certainly but like don't you know you should never feel constriction in your artistic and creative um expression I, that said there's a good and bad way to do things um but 
But I, I always come back to that idea of the North Star being like, I, I feel like most writers, especially the people who are wanting to write, maybe haven't written yet, or, you know, they have this story that's inside of them. And they're like, I, I have, like, I know the story, like almost always you talk to a writer, you're like, what's the story inside of you? Like, well, it's a person doing this. And, but you know what I mean? It's like right there, ready to come out. Um, and I think there's just such, something so powerful about telling that story about writing that story. Like it's just, it's yeah. a special thing to make communion with that. So, um, okay. So let me ask you this. What, what is, okay. So what does your like average writing day look like for you? Like, like, are you a serial worker? Do you work a couple hours? Like what, it, what does it look like? And do you have anything like, like specific rituals or routines that kind of help you get in that like writing spirit? Um, yeah. So this is one of those moments where I'm like, wouldn't it be really amazing if I had a process? Um, <laughs> but so I just, to everyone out there whose lives are extremely chaotic and are maybe consumed with things like caregiving or jobs, right. like right, I've been right. in all of those circumstances. Um, I wrote most of the 10,000 doors. I like, I started drafting it and then my first kid was born and then I was working full time with a really really screamy baby at home he was not an easy baby um and it was one of those things where like I realized that I couldn't have a routine because if I told myself that I needed x y and z in order to write I was never gonna write like so there was a lot of getting up at four in the morning or skipping lunch breaks and all this stuff um and it it did eventually happen (laughs) you know like I'm not totally sure where all the hours came from but it did add up yeah um and I did I do and did have a very very supportive partner so now my circumstance is that I get to be a full-time writer which is um extremely privileged and amazing and in part a product of living in rural Kentucky um the living costs here I cannot recommend them enough (laughs) um but even now I have two small children now and I have a partner who is home full time, but with the pandemic, we have found it really hard to maintain routine. Um, So mostly I try to write early in the morning and stop in the early afternoon, but it varies day to day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I can remember I have two small children. Uh, They're not even, I can't even see that anymore. It like kind of breaks my heart. I think I can want, I want to like weep my eyes out. Um, my, I looked at, I have a six and eight year old and I looked at my six year old this morning and I was like, you're huge. Like what, (laughs) what, what happened? Like you were just a little thing, like just recently. Um, but, but I, yeah, those, 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 um, early child days, especially when they're young and their schedule's crazy. I, it's, uh, unbelievably challenging to get into like some sort of like routine. I mean, like, it's almost like comical to say it. Um, was there, was there some way you found, you know, even in the midst of responsibilities and even in the midst of like children or whatever it might be, was there, was there some mindset or something you found that really helped you still produce work, even if it was chaotic and infrequent and chopped up? Yeah. Um, so I want to be honest and say that after the second kid, probably the most helpful thing I had was a deadline, Mm. (laughs) an editor who was expecting me to turn in a book. And apparently they take the money back if you don't give them a book. So (laughs) that was my main motivation was supporting my family. Um, We got to eat food. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's an eating food kind of a thing where it was like, well, may not be great today, but I'm going to write the words. Um, but definitely like before I had sold anything and was just sort of desperately getting up to finish the 10,000 doors, it was a feeling of like, 
you know, sometimes you're like making coffee at four and you're like, what am I doing? (laughs) What is the, what is the rush of this? Um, And I think it's just kind of having one of those, it wasn't like a huge ambition. I wasn't like sure that I could sell it or something and I would be a full-time writer. It, It was just this sense of like, wanting to have a story that was done and right you know like like especially if you're in the middle of something and it's all janky and none of it's right and you can sort of feel it being all rough I hate that feeling I hate drafting so bad and I just want to get to the part where you make it pretty and nice you know like that may have been the biggest motivation to finishing it is that I wanted to have it polished and done and even if it lived in a drawer for the rest of its life I felt like I would be I would have accomplished something yeah, there was like a, a value there yeah. of seeing it completed. Like like there, mm-hmm. there was just a this uh, and the reason I ask that is I think it's really helpful um for people out there. There's a lot of people, especially right now. I mean, we're still in a pandemic. Uh, you know, we're we're still in really challenging times to have any semblance of a routine or normalcy. Um, even as we start to get into like, oh, we're in a normal pandemic, it feels like things change, you know. And so um, and so I'm always looking for, you know, potentially the, the little things that people out there who, who want to write and they just, they can't feel like they can ever get on top of something like the little things that they can do, um, to, even if it's five minutes or 15 minutes, like it doesn't have to be hours, scribble something down, you know what I mean? Yeah. Exercise a little bit of that creative muscle, that little bit of expression. Um, you know? I would definitely say, particularly for creators who are maybe I'm going to say mostly most of them tend to be women but that's not exclusively true but creators who are also caregivers and whose other people's needs tend to come before theirs right um asking for time (laughs) either from your partner or whoever is helping you or even from your own children um is maybe the biggest first step because like you can make time and you can get up at four in the morning and stuff like that. But eventually you're going to need like just two hours on a Saturday morning or something to really take that time. I mean, it's, it makes you feel like a monster. And I don't know if that's um, sort of a socially encouraged thing or what, but it does make you feel like you're being selfish and you're being ridiculous. And, and there's other people whose needs are greater than yours. And that might even be true, but if you want to write that book, you got to take that time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so, and so um, I, I just had a conversation about this, about guilt and writing and and how, uh, you know, if somebody came to our life and we cared deeply about them and they said, I have this passion and this dream to tell a story and it might require a little bit of sacrifice from you. Most of us, if we love that person, would be like, that's amazing. That's great. Wow. Like, but, but to show that grace to ourselves can sometimes be so hard. Sometimes it feels so distant. And it doesn't go love away necessarily. A hundred percent. Like, like it is now the income for my household. <laughs> right. And I was thinking like, well, at least I won't feel guilty about writing anymore. That's not true at all. <laughs> right. It turns out, um, you know, on days where I have like a bad writing day and it was really slow and I wrote like 150 words and I spent all these hours just sort of like, beating my head against the keyboard it makes me feel guilty because I think like well why couldn't I go faster I could have been Mm -hmm. spending all those hours with my kids and my husband who is exhausted and stuck downstairs with two toddlers right (laughs) now you know like he needs me there's There's always an emergency yeah exactly he's like I was writing shirt yeah exactly (laughs) and I'm like it was 
you know, it was slow today. I hate that yeah. feeling. I yeah. hate that feeling so much. Yeah. That's like, that's like, it's like how the writing go today. And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. Uh-huh. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I hear the words you're saying. Yes. Um, okay. So this is so wonderful. I, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this, which is to uh, start to wrap up our conversation here and the way we end every single podcast, every single episode. Oh, and YouTube video. I'm going to have to like switch this up now. See now, now everything's changing. Um, the way we end every episode, maybe I should say that is I ask the same five questions to every single guest. And the reason I do that is firstly, I love the answers. They are a blast to hear. And they're so dynamic and varied and funny and heartfelt. And I, I just, I, I think they're wonderful. But secondly, uh, I do this because it, every single week it busts the myth a little bit more that there is one specific way you're supposed to do this writing thing because everyone's answers are different. Some people need things. Some people don't. Some people it, it's, it's so, it's so across the board. I hope it encourages listeners to find their own way to tell their story, right? Cause you, you, you can borrow and we can learn things, but ultimately it has to come from you from the inside out. And so um, it's a fun way to highlight that concept as well, which is why I do it. So that's it. Let us uh, dive into this. I'll pull up my questions here. Okay. Question number one. I love this question. Uh, what is the one word that best describes you? Oh, see... Full disclosure, you sent me these questions ahead of time. Yeah, so these are the only ones I, I send gonna, ahead of time. Yeah, this I is it. I was gonna answer tired, which is true, <laughs> which is true. Okay. But we are recording this the day after the Georgia Senate special election, runoff election. So I'm gonna go with triumphant. Instead. Triumphant, energetic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, energetic. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, uh, question, question number two. If you had to pick a spirit book. So this is a book that like if you died and you were reincarnated, you would be reincarnated as this book. Like it is just like the, the, the vision of life that you have. Uh, what book would it be? See, this question feels like a trap because if I choose something like, you know, pretentious, then I'm like a snob. And if I, if I'm <laughs> honest and everyone laughs at me, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right answer, it's but any I, answer. Yep. I, I'm going to go with the ocean at the end of the lane. Oh, which is okay. not even necessarily my favorite book in the entire world, although okay. I think it's wonderful, but it just, it hits, it's right at this place of like wistfulness and childhood, yeah. but f- for adults, you know, it's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's such, it's like a grown up fairy tale. And I feel like that's kind of hit somewhere close for me. I cry every time I read it. So I feel like it's, it's talking to me in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I'm going to have to go back. I actually have all these answers in a spreadsheet. And I, I think I think there's another guest who has said that book. So that really, might be, yeah, you might we'll be, be friends. Second, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna have to go back and look at it. I'll I'll follow up with you if I if I can find it. Okay, what absolutely wonderful. Okay, question number three: Is there a specific tool? It can be anything at all, uh, pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, whatever that you absolutely must have to write. I mean, honestly, the answer is probably coffee. But I try right. really hard for there to be nothing that I have to have to right. write. Because of that same thing of like, my life is chaos. That is the one that I have chosen as a chaotic life and I love it. And so like, if I start talking myself into needing a certain playlist or a coffee shop or a special place even, or a time of day, then I'm not going to get this done. So it just has to be whenever and wherever. I spent a lot of the summer driving 
the car to behind our utility building in town because it was shady and writing with my laptop on the steering wheel oh my gosh, because there's nowhere to go in 2020. Oh my gosh. I love it. That's like the commitment and, and, and the word I'm going to pick is devotion <laughs> to getting that story done and getting it out is just, it's like, it warms my heart. It's like why I do this whole thing is, is to touch on that energy is for me, it's just intoxicating. I, I absolutely love that. It's so beautiful. Okay. Uh, question number four, how do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? Uh, so first I like a big caveat here is that I, I have had a really lucky run here on publishing. I haven't had a bunch of massive disappointment. You know, like I, yeah. I have publishing friends now and I've realized like the variations of a writing career are huge. Um, mm -hmm. And so mine's been pretty lucky. Uh, but even with that, even just occasionally, you know, dealing with the fact that I made a terrible mistake and looked at Goodreads or something, <laughs> um, I find that the best thing, the thing I'm most grateful for is having most of my life not be my writing. Like hmm. as much as it's very chaotic and it makes it hard to write, like I am so grateful that I have most of my friends are not in writing and publishing world, you know, like right. I have two young children. I have a fantastic husband. I have a big dramatic family that always needs to be calling me on the phone. I have all this stuff going on, you know, and yeah. like that kind of combats that very capitalist idea that what you do to earn money is what defines who you are like and what you are. consume right. your thoughts and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and I think there's this, there's a sort of quiet and necessary like resistance or radicalism in, in just like having this full life that is completely disconnect from, from your projects for money or even for passion. <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. Okay. Question number five, our last question. Here we are. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be? See, I'm sure everyone said this, but the big thing is that I don't trust any writing advice and don't take any writing advice. No one said you that know? before. No one's oh, ever said, don't, on. don't, I, 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 honest to God, I don't think anyone's ever said, don't take <laughs> writing any writing advice, advice is garbage. Like none of it is, I mean, some, all of it's true for someone, but none of it's true for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So like you don't have to write every day and you don't have to write what you know, and you don't have to draft first and edit later. You don't have to finish everything you start. Like there's no one rule that is going to like, magically work for you um the only thing that i kind of tend to think is that you in order to write you need to have maybe something to say mm. <laughs> so it's kind of goes back to the last question and so I, I feel like that my only advice would be like don't forget to like do the living part like you know don't to mm. forget to have, like experience the world and learn yeah. things and be interested in the world because that is the only way you're going to have anything worth writing <laughs> yeah see now there's a beautiful piece of advice i have to I know, say i, I have know. to say we've kind of we kind of inceptioned our way into like advice See, i fool within people advice. Like, i don't yeah. have any advice but, but. what you have to do is <laughs> <laughs> if you were to do something uh this is so wonderful alex thank you so much like just connecting with you and your energy and your spirit and your openness it's just uh i'm gonna have a big smile on my face just kind of thinking about this for the rest of the day um, before we go, how can people find you online? Where are you, you know, where, where are your, uh, social, social hangouts? <laughs> it is with great regret that I say you can always find me on Twitter <laughs> at Alexi Hero. I'm okay. always on. It's too much. I'm also on Instagram at Alex 
e.hero, I think. Okay. Not totally sure. I'm not there as much. Um, so yeah. Twitter is your main haunt. Like if yeah, we're going to find you, is. we're going to find you on Twitter. Okay. You are. Wonderful. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been such a fun uh, interview, fun first YouTube interview. And uh, I super appreciate your time. And like I said, just your openness and your spirit, it's really refreshing. And um, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure the listeners will as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a thank delight. You. Thank you again to Alex for her time. If you haven't yet, please check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and soon YouTube. Lastly, uh, give us a review on iTunes. If you get a second, that'd mean a lot to us. I hope you have a wonderful week of writing, my friends, and thank you so much for listening.